Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to episode 43 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. This week, we're going to discuss the rupture and earthquake that will result along the San Andreas fault line. Historically, we've seen similar instances of earthquakes along portions of this fault resulting in damage, injuries, and death. However, we as humans typically learn from disasters and measure success in terms of response and time to recover from said disaster. Before we jump right into the potential for this majorly devastating earthquake to occur, We're going to cover how earthquakes are classified and rated by the United States Geological Survey. The ratings and classifications provide better insight into how to better prepare the infrastructure around us for the inevitable. Earthquakes are graded based on both magnitude and intensity. By far, the most common measurement that we non-seismologists see is the magnitude rating. Throughout history, there have been different magnitude scales used to measure earthquakes. Early on, Giuseppe Mercalli developed the Mercalli scale, which does not use scientific tools to measure the strength of an earthquake, rather it relies on the damage of the surrounding area to generate an estimate as to the strength of the earthquake. Today, the USGS, or United States Geological Survey, uses the modified Mercalli scale. This was developed in 1931 by the American seismologists Harry Wood and Frank Newman. This scale, composed of increasing levels of intensity that range from imperceptible shaking to catastrophic destruction, is designated by Roman numerals. It does not have a mathematical basis, instead, it is an arbitrary ranking based on observed effects. The modified Mercalli intensity value assigned to a specific site after an earthquake has a more meaningful measure of severity to the non-scientist than the magnitude because intensity refers to the effects actually experienced at the place. The lower numbers of the intensity scale generally deal with the manner in which the earthquake is felt by people. The higher numbers of the scale are based on observed structural damage. Structural engineers usually contribute information for assigning intensity values of 8 or above. Now on the other end of the spectrum is the scientific rating, known as the Richter scale. This is a measurement that we are most commonly familiar with as it provides the magnitude rating. Prior to the Richter scale, there were several other measurement scales such as the Rossi-Ferrell scale that was only subjective. Charles Richter developed this scale in 1935. The Richter scale was designed in 1935 for particular circumstances and instruments. The particular circumstances refer to it being defined for Southern California 
and implicitly incorporates the attenuative properties of Southern California crust and mantle. The particular instrument used would become saturated by strong earthquakes and unable to record high values. The scale was replaced in the 1970s by the Moment Magnitude Scale for earthquakes adequately measured by the Richter Scale. Numerical values are approximately the same. Although values measured for the earthquakes are now magnitude, they are frequently reported by the press as Richter values, even for earthquakes of magnitude of over 8, when the Richter scale becomes meaningless. The measurements are defined as such. A magnitude 1.0 to 1.9 is described as a microquake. These are generally not felt and millions occur across the planet each day. These minuscule quakes are recorded by seismographs. They are generally rated on the modified Mercalli intensity scale as a 1. Magnitude 2.0 to 2.9 is described as a minor earthquake and is felt by very few people. There is generally no damage to buildings due to the earthquakes measuring at this magnitude. These small earthquakes are also reported as a 1 on the modified Mercalli intensity scale. Over 1 million of these earthquakes occur per year. A magnitude 3.0 to 3.9 is also described as a minor earthquake. However, here is where the shaking is felt by many. Little to no damage occurs during quakes of this magnitude. These earthquakes are ranked as a 2 to 3 on the modified Mercalli intensity scale. Over 100,000 earthquakes of this magnitude are recorded each year. Magnitude 4.0 to 4.9 is described as light, and this is the point at which shaking is felt by most, and indoor objects begin swinging and loose objects may fall from shelves. These earthquakes cause little to no damage, and earthquakes of this magnitude are classified as a 4 to 5 on the modified Mercalli intensity scale. 10 to 15,000 earthquakes of this type occur per year. Magnitude 5.0 to 5.9 is described as moderate and can cause damage of varying severity, depending on construction and age of affected buildings. These earthquakes are felt by all and are classified as a 6 to 7 on the modified Mercalli intensity scale. 1 to 5,000 of these earthquakes occur per year. Magnitude 6.0 to 6.9 is described as strong and damage to well-built structures is notated during these quakes. Those buildings built to withstand strong quakes sustain minor to moderate damage, while older buildings suffer moderate to severe. Quakes of this magnitude can be felt hundreds of miles away from the epicenter, and these earthquakes are classified as a 7 to 9 on the modified Mercalli intensity scale. Between 100 and 150 earthquakes of this magnitude occur per year. A magnitude 7.0 to 7.9 is described as a major earthquake and the damage is severe. Most buildings sustain some level of damage and earthquake resistant structures sustain light to moderate damage. These earthquakes are felt over great distances, most commonly about 150 miles from the epicenter. Quakes between 7.0 and greater receive a classification of 7 or higher on the modified Mercalli intensity scale. Only 10 to 20 of these earthquakes occur per year. Magnitude 8.0 to 8.9 earthquakes are described as major also. Damage to buildings is major, even in earthquake-resistant structures. These quakes tend to be felt over large areas. Approximately one earthquake of this magnitude occurs per year. Now magnitude 9.0 and greater is described as great. Damage is total, and very few buildings remain standing following an earthquake of this magnitude. Additionally, since these earthquakes are so strong, it is not uncommon to see permanent ground feature changes. Approximately one of these earthquakes occurs every 10 to 50 years. Now should the San Andreas Fault experience a full-on failure and a rupture the full length of this fault, this rupture would be absolutely cataclysmic and would result in the deaths of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. There is new data that suggests that even if the San Andreas Fault were to release, 
our best friend, the Cascadia Subduction Zone, could too release, sending with it hundreds of millions of tons of energy. The San Andreas Fault is a continental transform plate that extends approximately 750 miles throughout the state of California. It forms the tectonic boundary between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate, and its motion is right lateral strike slip, horizontal. The fault divides into three segments, each with different characteristics and a different degree of earthquake risk. The slip rate along this fault ranges from 20 to 35 millimeters, 0.79 to 1.38 inches per year. The population of those who live within proximity to this fault is in the tens of millions when considering the population of Los Angeles and San Francisco alone. While we aren't going to see the devastation that is depicted in movies, such as 2012, it will be the worst we've experienced. History has proven that time and time again, earthquakes that occur along this fault result in devastation. One such event is the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. This event represents how bad it could be should the San Andreas Fault rupture. At 5.12 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, on Wednesday, April 18, 1906, the coast of Northern California was struck by a major earthquake with an estimated moment magnitude of 7.9 and a maximum Mercalli intensity of 11, or extreme. High-intensity shaking was felt from Eureka on the north coast to the Salinas Valley, an agricultural region to the south of the San Francisco Bay Area. Devastating fires soon broke out in San Francisco and lasted for several days. More than 3,000 people died, and over 80% of the city was destroyed. The events are remembered as one of the worst and deadliest earthquakes in the history of the United States. The death toll remains the greatest loss of life from a natural disaster in California's history and high on the list of American disasters. What I fear is not the shaking event itself, because that typically only lasts between 10 and 30 seconds. What I fear is the after effects of this earthquake and the damage and destruction and total loss of critical infrastructure that will occur. Even after decades of study and appropriate measures such as updating building codes, extensive public outreach, and sensors dotting the entire length of the fault to detect even the most minute shaking, it is still going to be one of the worst disasters to occur throughout the world. I fear the response to this catastrophic earthquake is going to resemble a Katrina-esque response. While yes, emergency management has evolved since then, with FEMA being stacked with experienced leadership instead of your typical political appointee, I fear that this disaster is just going to overwhelm the system and procedures that are in place. We aren't simply looking at a city or regional disaster. We're looking at a statewide one that is going to encompass several states, and one that will require the coordination between agencies from the local to federal level. This is why I tell each of you to have a plan, to test your plan, and to use that plan when it becomes necessary. I'm not one of those people who has 500 years worth of canned vegetables and a bomb shelter that I dug in my backyard, but someone who views this from a more practical angle and believes that you do need to have at least two weeks of basic survival items such as food, water, medications, and supplies to get you through the initial response phase of any disaster. If after two weeks, the government has yet to provide assistance to you, then you need to get as far away from the affected area as you can, whether that be on foot or in a vehicle. I will always be an advocate for preparedness and making sure that all of you are aware of what items should be kept on hand during disasters to ensure you can survive. Now, as I circle back to line up for the scenario that I've prepared for this week, I mentioned the Cascadia subduction zone. That fault runs through the Pacific Northwest, and if you haven't listened to that episode about it, I really advise you to do so because it provides a lot of insight into the, the geography and the topography of the area and what a risk of an earthquake looks like in the Pacific Northwest. 
if that fault were to rupture, the magnitude is estimated to be anywhere between 8.7 and 9.2. Both faults have ruptured near simultaneously, most recently in 1700. The earthquake that occurred in 1700 was rated at a magnitude between 8.7 and 9.2. If that size earthquake were to occur today, the damage would be immeasurable. In my previous episodes where I cover the Cascadia subduction zone, it has been found that the surrounding communities are greatly unprepared for the next massive earthquake in the region. I think at this point, we're going to take a quick break and go through a scenario where the two seismic faults do rupture. On a warm night, sometime in early June, seismic monitoring stations located throughout the state of California begin to identify several thousand mini-earthquakes dotting up sporadically along the San Andreas Fault. Now normally, this isn't very alarming. However, the next morning, all hell breaks loose as a catastrophic magnitude 8.1 earthquake erupts. This is the big one that scientists have long feared. The epicenter of this earthquake is located approximately 30 miles northeast of Los Angeles. And due to the magnitude of this earthquake, other faults such as the San Gregorio, Calaveras, and Hayward faults erupt with smaller earthquakes. The San Gregorio earthquake produces a tsunami of about 30 feet and causes the water to rush into the coastal cities and towns of Monterey, Santa Cruz, and Watsonville. The Calaveras fault produces an earthquake measuring at a magnitude of 7.2 and produces fairly significant damage in Gilroy and Pleasanton, California. The earthquake is over in approximately 30 seconds, however, the damage is catastrophic. In Los Angeles, some neighborhoods, such as Altadena, have been completely leveled as a result of the shaking. Interstate 210, which runs to the west of Altadena, has collapsed, leaving many stranded on the roadway during the morning rush hour. Pasadena has also experienced major damage as well, with the Foothill Freeway collapsing. Downtown Los Angeles suffers extensive damage as well. The U.S. Bank Tower experiences major damage to its foundation, forcing the building to lean. Power is cut to much of the city following damage to several substations located throughout the city, and due to this, water treatment capacity has significantly declined. In some neighborhoods, gas lines have ruptured, leading to fires burning out of control. About three hours north in San Francisco, a tsunami warning is in effect following the shaking and subsequent earthquake that ruptured along the San Gregorio Fault. A tsunami at a height of about 100 feet sweeps into the San Francisco Bay, causing catastrophic damage to the Fisherman's Wharf, Emeryville, and other cities throughout the Bay Area. The Millennium Tower suffers a massive failure at the base, causing it to collapse, taking with it a large area of damage. Due to the time at which this earthquake happens, both rush hour and early workers perish during this event. Floodwaters continue to race inland, taking with it debris and swallowing those unable to escape to high ground quick enough. Power has been knocked out in San Francisco also, with several emergency generators that the city's emergency communication center relies on in the event of a disaster. Due to this, the first response agencies have to rely on backup systems such as ham and CB radios. Interstate 280 and Interstate 80 both suffer significant damage, prompting many to have to try and find alternative routes throughout damaged surface streets. As we work further north of San Francisco, coastal towns and cities remain on high alert as the tsunami races onshore damaging different ports of the coastal highway. 
You thought I was done, huh? Nearly 20 minutes following this catastrophic earthquake along the San Andreas Fault, the Cascadia subduction zone experiences a massive rupture as well, sending with it a massive wall of water screaming into the majority of coastal towns and cities throughout the Pacific Northwest coast, destroying many of them. While far enough inland to not face the direct brunt of the tsunami wave, fast-moving water rushes downstream on the Columbia River, forcing water into Portland and causing massive damage and causing the airport to terminate operations for the foreseeable future. The earthquake following the Cascadia rupture measures as a magnitude 9.2, triggering Mount Rainier to produce a magnificent eruption. Cities such as Seattle that have a fault running directly through their downtown portions experience near-total destruction as those faults rupture, causing subsequent shaking. Seattle is hit by a rather destructive tsunami of about 200 feet. Luckily, Seattle is elevated so the tsunami is unable to reach the highly populated downtown area. Unfortunately, the citizens have enough of a survival battle dealing with the intense shaking. The eruption of Mount Rainier prompts evacuations for all of the surrounding towns that dot the foothills. Evacuation at this period in time remains extremely challenging due to the earthquake and damaged roadways as a result. Volcanic ash is seen rising through the sky and begins to coat much of the landscape to the east as luckily the wind is blowing from off the Pacific Ocean this day. As the dust settles and aftershocks continue to rock the region for hours and days following the massive earthquakes, people begin to dig themselves out of the rubble and begin to assess their situations. Immediately, the governors of California, Oregon, and Washington enact a state of emergency and activate all available National Guard units. Unfortunately, due to the time at which this earthquake occurs, not many National Guard soldiers are in garrison and must commute in. First response agencies are scrambling to get their bearings as communication infrastructure has greatly been impacted. Teams of firefighters begin fanning out from their respective fire stations to survey the damage and begin to funnel information back into their command teams. Swarms of police also do the same, reporting any collapsed structures needing search and any fires that may be spreading. Local emergency management personnel stationed in the emergency operations center overnight immediately activate emergency operations following the quake and alert their respective rosters. Surveillance cameras used to monitor road conditions are out in many areas, making it difficult for those in the EOC to get an effective overview of the situation. It's evident that both local and state resources have quickly become exhausted. In response, the president declares a federal disaster declaration, freeing up further resources. Immediately, the hospital ship Mercy and Comfort deploy into the hardest-hit regions, providing acute care until hospitals can return to normal operations. Many of the federal USAR, or urban search and rescue teams from around the country, quickly activate their teams and deploy to assist with search and rescue efforts. Canada, Mexico, South Korean, and Japanese search and rescue teams arrive within days to provide expert assistance in searching the heavily damaged urban areas. In response to the number of injured that are being reported, disaster medical teams are activated and respond into the affected disaster areas by setting up mobile field hospitals to provide even more medical support. All branches of the military assist with providing airlift capabilities, search and rescue, and logistics services to help offload the stress from first response agencies and allow them to work at the community level to help those affected. The damage is catastrophic, with several older structures throughout Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle collapsing, taking with it the lives who were trapped when the shaking started. After roughly four weeks of search and rescue and recovery operations, field medical care, and damage survey, the operations finally begin to shift into a more sustained recovery mode, with several hundred civil engineering companies providing debris removal services 
and tens of thousands of linemen, water treatment professionals, and communications specialists working to begin on restoring critical infrastructure throughout the affected area. This won't be an overnight fix, and it will take time to replace the completely destroyed substations, rerun lines, and restore operations to wastewater treatment facilities. Initial deaths are estimated at 150,000, and injuries are double that. Damage is estimated to be in the tens to hundreds of billions of dollars, with a recovery not expected to be done for at least one year. Those affected are moved and provided with temporary housing located in different portions of the country. The United States Geological Survey provides a final measurement of that quake that occurred in California at a magnitude 8.5 and the one in the Pacific Northwest at a magnitude 9.1. The volcanic eruption amounts to very little in the way of damage, but it does limit satellite observation capabilities of affected areas for days as volcanic ash circulates around the planet. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen this week. I apologize for the delay in uploading as I've recently taken on a new job at a new company that has demanded quite a bit of my time. This episode will be the final one of 2022. I hope every one of you has had a great year, and as I reflect, the show has grown immensely. Without each of you, I would simply be talking into the ether. Please be safe this holiday, and if you feel yourself being lonely at this time of year, please don't hesitate to shoot me a DM on Instagram, and I'll be sure to respond because no one deserves to be alone during the holidays. The next episode will be available on January 8th, following a well-deserved break on my end. As always, please be sure to follow the show, and if you're interested, merchandise is still available. Until next year, this has been Destination Disaster. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.